It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's January and it's boring. <laughs> it really is boring. We just got back from the General Assembly. We had a meeting there this morning. By the way, we're recording this podcast on Thursday morning. And the General Assembly was empty. I was asking the security guards what they talk about when they get bored. And I said, are you guys bored? And they said, kind of. We just talk about TV shows. We watch the clock. I said, that sounds (laughs) very exciting. I saw a few staffers walking around. They seem to be very busy. They're always busy. It was good to be over there. I mean, I feel like we are just waiting and waiting for this Supreme Court case to begin next week. And in the meantime, the General Assembly is technically in session, but they are not in Raleigh. And I expect they'll come back after we get some finality from the court. In the meantime, we are seeing a few fundraisers being held across the state. And a lot of folks have asked, well, how can we do fundraisers because we have this blackout period while the General Assembly is in session and they technically are in session? But that doesn't stop fundraisers from happening. It just means what? It just means that you can't give pack checks during that period. Right. So if you're an individual and you want to write a check to a legislator, you can do that. But if you are a registered PAC with the state, and if you're, if you're a PAC doing business in North Carolina, you better register with the State Board of Elections. You are blacked out during this period. You can still go to the fundraisers. You just can't give money. PACs can only give money when the General Assembly is not in session. We are starting to hear more rumors about 2024. Some are founded, some are not so founded, but they're worth mentioning, right? We can put some rumors out there, at least share what we're hearing. Yeah, we're not journalists. We can say whatever we want. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So I got a message last week, because we've been talking about the Attorney General's race here in North Carolina, 2024. All indications are that Attorney General Josh Stein is going to run for governor. We know there's this talk out there of Senator Danny Britt. Is he going to run for Attorney General? This talk started by you. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it did. Maybe it did. Yeah, some rumors I started, by the way. Uh, (laughs) You've always wanted to be the cool kid in high school. Yeah, uh, I, I love it when I start a rumor and then the rumor comes back to me. Have you heard? And then, yeah, I have actually. Then there's talk that Senator Jeff Jackson, who was running for the United States Senate, he's being recruited to run for attorney general on the Democratic side. But there's also a name being floated. It was sent to me directly in a message last week that former representative Tom Murray who used to represent Cary, Morrisville, Apex area. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we had Representative Gail Adcock on. She now has that seat. But there's talk that Representative Tom Murray, former representative, is putting his hat in the ring or is looking at that race. Right now, he's an assistant district attorney in Franklin County. When Chief Justice Mark Martin was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he worked over at AOC, so he has a lot of experience in the courts. Yeah, he is uh, has a military background. He is a pharmacist. 
He is an attorney. He would be, I believe, a very thoughtful and competitive candidate. So we'll just see how that plays out. Still a lot of time. Yeah, it is only the beginning of 2022. Yeah. Is that your only rumor that you want to share with the listeners? No, there's some one more. <laughs> we heard Senator Tom Tillis this past week go to the Senate floor and say that if the Senate gets rid of the filibuster, he's going to resign the Senate. He doesn't want to see that. There is a rumor that Senator Tom Tillis is looking at the governor's mansion in 2024. That would be a primary with current Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. So when you think about... But he wouldn't have to give up his seat. Tillis wouldn't, right? He would not have to give it up. No, he could run. And if he's successful, you know, he would resign his seat. But yeah, he, he, could, he could stay in the United States Senate and run for governor. Uh, my understanding, he could. When you think about Mark Robinson, I know there's a lot of trepidation right now on the Republican side because of comments that he has made that have been shared on social media and in the media about his views on certain issues. And I think a lot of folks are thinking, but who could beat Mark Robinson in a primary? I think Senator Tom Tillis, the name ID, he has been in North Carolina politics going back to 2008. We all know he became Speaker of the House in 2011. So you were telling me this week, Sky, that you saw some reports that Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson did haul in a big amount of cash in his last campaign reporting cycle. Yeah, so it is the end of the month. So by the 31st, folks are going to have to turn in their fundraising reports through 2021. And Lieutenant Governor Robinson has raised or reported to have raised $1.5 million. Very impressive. And it's notable that he is releasing these numbers prior to January 31st. I think the intention is to share with the field out there, anyone who's thinking of challenging the lieutenant governor, he wants you to know that he has cash in the bank. So if you are coming after him in a primary, beware, he's got money to spend. And again, going back to the Senator Tillis rumor, $1.5 million is nothing compared to what he would bring to a primary election. While we sit around and wait for the oral arguments next week, this week I had told you that I saw while watching the football game the other night a commercial, and I think um, CBS covered this, mm -hmm. that there is a an ad on TV that's targeting the Supreme Court justices and asking them to strike down the maps. And I just found it to be interesting because how often do you see outside money coming in and talking directly to judges and telling them how they'd like them to decide. This is a big ad buy. As we were waiting to record the podcast, I was on YouTube and up comes the ad. It's a 30 second ad. Oh really? It came up? Yeah, it came right up and I couldn't skip through it either. I mean, this is a paid ad. So we're seeing it on television, you're hearing it on the radio, and it's all over social media. My understanding is that this is an independent expenditure. These are interest groups that 
combine their money together and they work independently of any of the political parties and they have free speech. And you could say this is good. You could say this is bad. It all goes back to Citizens United in 2009. You can spend unlimited amounts of money. You can put as much money into this independent expenditure as you want. And as long as you are not coordinating with a political campaign or a party, you can do this legally. Also with this targeted approach to the Supreme Court. And I know we talked about this last week, the recusal requests. And you've seen on social media folks going after Justice Earls. There is a Twitter account that's highlighting impartial Anita's tweet of the day where they're talking about some of her past tweets, critical of Republicans. But it also just, I think, highlights and maybe raises the awareness of your average North Carolinian as to who is on the Supreme Court and what their political philosophy is. And we've talked about this with a ton of different people over the years. Like, how much do you know about the judges that you're voting for? Maybe not that much. So I I guess the good and bad of it, the bad would certainly be that we're politicizing the courts more. The good would be that maybe people are learning more about who judges are and what they stand for or against. I can't imagine, though, that any of the seven justices are getting on YouTube and are being persuaded by these 30-second ads. I am wondering what it would have been like in that whiteboard discussion of this independent expenditure as they are sitting down with their PR firm. What is it that you are trying to achieve and how? We do know this. There is a lot of money being spent really highlighting the stakes here. All of this discussion about the Supreme Court and judges knowing who they are, what they stand for, we have highlighted a judge in the past, Judge Joe John, who is now a representative, and one of his colleagues, Judge and now Representative Marsha Moray, came on to talk to us, and we really highlighted both her work in the court system and also her time as an Olympian. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Marsha Moray, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, great to be here. To kick us off, tell us about your district. Where is your district? What's the makeup? What makes your district special? Well, Scott, that's a great question because we don't know what the district will be, but (laughs) what it has been since I've been there in 2017 is in Durham, and it's District 30, which is, it's a large district, actually. It's uh, part of the west of Durham County and then goes all the way north of I-85 to the border. So it includes Mm -hmm. Bahama and Rougemont uh, near Duke University and then over to the Orange County line. Can you talk a little bit about your political career? Start with, if you don't mind, your time uh, on the bench as a judge in Durham County. 
I came to Durham as an assistant DA under Ron Stevens, okay. uh, who was our elected DA at the time, and got into juvenile court yeah. and absolutely loved it. And then I went and worked with Governor Hunt when he created the Governor's Commission on Juvenile Crime and Justice. So I was his executive director based on my experience in the juvenile court system. And it was really interesting because at the time, Governor Hunt was running for his fourth term, and it was in the mid-90s, and there was a big spike in crime. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about child super predators. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was on the cover of a lot of national magazines, and Governor Hunt wanted to look at North Carolina's juvenile code. And in fact, one of his brochures for the campaign was, we've got to stop these punks and thugs. Hmm. And I thought, uh, I may not be the right person for this job, but I've had many years in juvenile court and really knew we had a lot to do. To, to We had overcrowding in our training schools. They were you know, over 1,500 were in our training schools. There was a better way to approach juvenile justice. So what I said to Governor Hunt was, I think you need to come sit in a courtroom and really see the typical cases. It's not the, the outliers of the murders that make the headlines. It's the thousands of kids that really need help. And to his credit, he sat in a Charlotte courtroom in a juvenile court. He watched a judge send three kids to training school for very minor offenses of running away and truancy. Mm -hmm. He saw that parents weren't, didn't have to be in a courtroom. And so I think he really started to understand, you know, how can we improve the system to give these kids hope, to get them services? And uh, we totally rehauled the uh, juvenile code back in 1998, went to the General Assembly. It was passed unanimously. And then the long story, he appointed me to the bench, probably to shut up and, you know, <laughs> take the bench and, and be a good judge. So I went to the bench in 1999 in Durham District Court and became the chief district court judge sometime in 2011 or 12. Uh, love my time on the bench. It was not political. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I am really not a political person right. uh, until I took an appointment in 2017 uh, to fill the seat of uh, Representative Lupke, mm -hmm. who Paul had passed, yeah. passed away, wonderful man. Yeah. yeah. So what made you decide to take that seat? Did someone approach you, or were you interested in running for the General Assembly? Well, Sky, it was a little bit of both. Um, I knew it was an opportunity. It would be a big challenge. I had been on the bench for over 18 years and in the court system, and I really was curious. I really wanted to learn about, you know, how does state government work? Uh, what is the political climate in North Carolina? And I think the biggest thing, uh, raised the age of juvenile jurisdiction was uh, introduced and coming up, and uh, Representative Chuck McGrady was taking a, a strong lead in that. So it was a perfect opportunity because that was part of my passion uh, with our juvenile code that we were the only state in the country where 16-year-olds were considered to be adults, and raising it to 18 was very important. And so uh, I just decided to, to take off the robe, uh, take the plunge, and joined in uh, April of 2017. And when you talk about this passion for raising the age and how we deal with juvenile offenders, I was working as a lobbyist for the Covenant with North Carolina's Children, and you were vocal as a judge about why the state needed to take these kids and treat them as juvenile offenders in the juvenile system. 
can you talk a little bit about that and where where this comes from with you? Being a district court judge, you do all the courts. Yeah. So you would rotate, you do a juvenile uh, delinquency session one week, and then you'd go to criminal court, and then maybe family court. But I would leave a juvenile courtroom watching court counselors, watching how we would put appropriate services for mental health, for substance abuse. And yet the very next week, if a 16-year-old had just turned 16 the week before, Mm -hmm. it was all punitive. It was all criminal. And yet, if you went to Virginia, a 16, 17-year-old, they were treated as juveniles in other states but we were unforgiving in North Carolina. You know, that arrest is a public record, even for a minor simple possession of marijuana. We can work with these young people. And and we know from brain development, they're not fully developed really until they're age 25. So uh, I think just the years of watching this, the years of watching criminal records really slam doors to opportunities for kids for, you know, even staying in public housing, for going on to college for getting jobs those criminal records and the collateral consequences really harmed them and so that's why you know raising it to 18 became so important we're talking thousands of kids every year that were getting these misdemeanor convictions or felony convictions um, when so many uh, were suffering from poverty they did not have the home support and environment they needed and uh, if we could get them the services, we could be successful. And with juveniles, correct me if I'm wrong, as a judge, when you're dealing with a juvenile offender as opposed to an adult offender in the juvenile system, you can wrap those services around the entire family, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. You have jurisdiction over the, the family, yeah. uh, the parents, and right. they can be required to get their own counseling, right. do transportation for the kids to go to programs monitor their schoolwork, make sure they're not dropping out or they're chronically truant. And so it is a family uh, effort. Let's go back to that 98 session. It was a special session. And I remember the terms being used were really hard to listen to, the the super predator. Mm -hmm. We have really evolved over the last 25 years in the way we think about children in our juvenile justice system. Has this been a surprise to you? You were ringing this bell 20 years ago, but it seems like we now have an understanding we didn't have then. Brian, I think you're absolutely right that that we do. And I can look back when I first became a judge, and it was like, well, even kids as young as six could come into the juvenile system. The thought then was, well, we can get them help if they enter the system. And we weren't looking at the detriment or the labeling. And, you know... That had an impact on being a delinquent child that lives with someone. So I I think we have evolved that we can get children help. They don't have to be in a juvenile justice system or the adult system um, and be much better at turning their lives around. Let's talk about going from being a judge to being at the General Assembly and you are a subject matter expert on judiciary issues. What is that like? knowing that your colleagues are going to come to you and say, is this a good or bad bill? And how do you go about reading and processing bills? Well, the transition from (laughs) being in your courtroom and having total control and you can stop debate and start debate and make decisions and adjourn. 
um, to now being in the minority. And uh, when I first came, I was in the next to last row. But I remember the first session I attended, it was the issue, should we reduce the Court of Appeals and mm -hmm. take three Court of Appellate judges off, give termination of parental rights cases to the Supreme Court. And I, with a very fast-beating heart, pressed my light and stood up and spoke about it um, because it, it is a subject matter I do know about. It's, it's wonderful to be currently uh, in the Democratic caucus with Joe John, who is also a judge, and Abe Jones, who is a judge. And I think we have a, an appreciation for you know the administration of justice, uh, what happens in the courts, and we can help guide some of our colleagues. And, and hopefully uh, talk across the aisle and um, you know share experiences that we have. I'm on the Judiciary Committee. I am not in leadership, so maybe I can influence some in my party more than others, but I really try to approach it not from a political angle. Um, I'm trying to approach it what is fair, what is just, what is for you know the common good. And we have a lot we need to change in our, our court system. We have to support our court system and especially look at our criminal justice. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the court system within the legislature? When I first arrived, I, I think there was a perception by legislators, oh, judges leave by Thursday morning and they're playing golf. Mm -hmm. um, there are several different levels of courts, and the district courts are kind of like the, the people's court. You're in traffic court, you're in family court, you're in child support, criminal, juvenile and district court judges are there in the morning, you know, starting 9 a.m., and you usually don't finish those long dockets until 5 or after 5, and that's Monday through Friday. Superior court is, is different. If trials break down, the judges, you know, have finished. They have to wait until the next session. Uh, the appellate courts are, of course, very different than the trial courts. So I think each level of court is different. But I think there was an impression, um, and maybe constituents of some of the legislatures would complain, well, you know, I can't get into court, They're the judges off the bench, or I think overall judges work very hard, they take their oath very seriously, and just because a judge is not sitting in a courtroom, they may be drafting opinions, writing opinions, studying cases, um, that the courts work very hard uh, with limited resources. We, they only get about 2 to 3% of the overall budget. Representative Morey, can you talk a little bit about your early life? You grew up in <laughs> Illinois, went to school in Illinois. Dinosaur age, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to North Carolina? Well, my first job out of law school was a investigator with the NCAA. Oh, wow. So I was the first female investigator, and I went and... Uh, spied on uh, some of the Division One schools. We were looking especially at uh, Tarkanian out in Las Vegas about out-of-season practices. Yeah. Charlie Pell was at uh, Georgia and then went to Florida, and he was illegally recruiting athletes from North Carolina. Okay. So I would fly into Raleigh-Durham, go to Lumberton, go to Robinson County, and talk to families of uh, who was being recruited, finding there was a new car in the driveway, there was a new refrigerator, you know, <laughs> in the kitchen, taking serial numbers down, and 
filing complaints against uh, the coaches or the schools for illegal recruiting. So that brought me down this area quite a bit. Okay. And as I said, it wasn't UNC or Duke. It was mm-hmm. out, of, out of state schools doing some of these shenanigans. And I just fell in love with it. So I moved here and back in 1987 and started working in the courts. And you have a background in athletics you know firsthand what unethical athletic practices are out there. You are an Olympic swimmer. Can you talk a little bit about your background as an athlete? Oh, if I can go back that far. Um, Yeah, I was a competitive kid, and uh, I swam when I was six years old on Mm. just a local Y team and a, a little country club team and just loved it. If you have you know twice the size of feet that are normal and you have you know flippers that can get you through the water Um, and so I just became very uh, enamored with the pool and swimming and would uh, actually in high school and we didn't have much for girls athletics Um, so I swam with the men's college team and trained with them there's a division three school in my hometown Millican University and the coach saw some promise in me, and so I started working out with the college guys and then went to the first world championships after my senior year in high school and just came back and stayed with my coach and trained with the men. And it, it was a great experience, um, maybe not so much for them. Okay. <laughs> I can remember a couple of the girlfriends of the guys, please don't beat him, my parents are coming to watch. <laughs> but uh, So I just uh, stayed at it and... Uh, won my first national championship and then um what year was that that was 1973 wow and so then we went to belgrade yugoslavia the first world championships that were ever held in belgrade um gorgeous country gorgeous pool um we did fairly well but that was the year after the munich olympics right and that was the dawn of east germany starting to dominate uh women's swimming and Little did we know, but the German government had set up a sports structure that they would take kids from their homes when they were six or seven years old and put them into sports camps, uh, you know, just based on their decision, willing or not, and started giving, especially the female athletes, these oral terminal steroids. And by the time the Olympics that I swam in in 1976 came, East Germans women were shattering every world record. Um, So it became very bittersweet by the time I made the 76 Olympic team. I was second in the world with my times, but the East Germans, every time they dove in, they they were absolutely shattering world records. After the fact, it came out, and there was an international investigation. Um, and many of the East Germans, there was a movie made, The Last Gold. And uh, East Germans talked about getting these little blue pills and how it changed their bodies. They, they grew massively uh, in size and weight, and yeah. their performance was outstanding. So um, in 76, I did not win a medal, and uh, very disappointed with my performance. Um, Did you go in with an expectation of, I mean, you're second in the world. Theoretically, you would come away with a medal. Theoretically. Right. (laughs) As we know. Yeah. It doesn't always work out. But, you know, I I think even the psychological uh, toll it took on the U.S. women's team, we didn't win any gold medals 
compared to Munich, where the women won, I think, almost 12 out of 15 races. And then here we go to Montreal, and uh, the last relay is the only gold medal the uh, U.S. women won, and uh, they did a phenomenal job. But, you know, and we were told not to complain, not to make allegations of cheating of the steroid use, but it did, in fact, come out to be uh, true several years later. Had to have a psych. You, you talk about the psychological effect it had on the team. Had to have a devastating effect on you to have well, dreams yeah. dashed, right? Especially well, it with did. to unfairness. That, absolutely. Right. Um, and. Yeah, because you want to win fairly, um, no cheating. And I think being an Olympian, especially from a small town in Illinois, representing your family, your neighbors, your community, your state can really weighs heavily on you. Yeah. Um, I like to please, and yeah. I really wanted to go in and, and put Decatur on the map and make them proud. And uh, so to come away without a medal, yeah, it was devastating. And I suffered with anorexia uh, Mm -hmm. for many years after that just because I just couldn't see my um, Mm self-worth. And I had thought I had let people down uh, Mm -hmm. as a person. And trying to find, you know, at the age of 21, all you've done is swim your whole life and go to school. Like, who are you? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but... In hindsight, it made me much stronger, and um, and I think that's why being a judge just absolutely devoted to doing what's just and fair, and uh, hopefully now as being a legislator, I, I take that same sense with me. So four years later was the 1980 Olympics. We boycotted those Olympics. They were to be held in the USSR of the time. Right. Was that a possibility? Was 1980 on your radar to go back and compete? Uh, I think I was so devastated after 76 that uh, that was the time. And I was ready to get out of college by the next year. And so it it was time to hang it up. And I wanted to be something other than, you know, a jock. Uh, You know, I wanted to really get into law school, got a master's in teaching, and and do more to help other people, not just be kind of an athlete swimming up and down the lane. My wife's going to want to know this. What was your specialty in swimming? 100 and 200 meter breaststroke. Oh, wow. Yep. So. I can't do the breaststroke. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> my, I try to do the butterfly. My wife says I can. She she forbids it. It's just it's not. <laughs> You're I, embarrassing. I, the I'm family, embarrassing. Right? <laughs> I, I go backwards when I try to do the butterfly. So. At this point, you're 21. Like you said, you got a master's and you're deciding what you want to be. But clearly you were very smart because you got a master's degree and I believe you got your JD from Northwestern. Is that correct? Yes. It's Northwestern School of Law. It was in Oregon. I've spent my last year at University of Illinois. A lot of people confuse it with Northwestern and Evanston. But um, yeah, I thought I'd be an environmental lawyer. So I went to Oregon and got a master's out there in two years of law school and then finished up at Illinois. So when you were out in Oregon, were you thinking that you wanted to practice some sort of law that involved athletics for you to get into the NCAA? Or how did how did that happen? We're digging deep now. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was a lawyer and his dad was a lawyer and I hated law school. (laughs) And my dad said to me once, I don't care if you never practice law. It's a wonderful education. So that's kind of what got me through it. Um, 
putting the NCAA together with law just was a happenstance. Okay. I uh, heard that they were hiring, and I just called the number and got an interview, probably because I had been in the Olympics. But, uh, you know, I think the more when I came to North Carolina and really got into a courtroom, and especially in the juvenile courtroom, that's when it all clicked. And that's when I really realized this is my passion. Um, I think what I went through had no comparison to the lives I saw of these young kids, mm-hmm. um, the hopelessness. And to give some degree of um, confidence in these kids, trying to help, trying to understand, um, that really became uh, what I wanted to do. So the General Assembly has been addressing some criminal justice reform legislation this past session. I think it was Senate Bill 300. Senator Danny Britt uh, championed that bill, comes over to the House. We see it in the Judiciary Committee where you serve I see you talking to him, trying to make some changes, trying to improve it. Can you talk a little bit about how you work, both as an expert in criminal justice work, but also serving in the minority? How do you balance being the loyal opposition with trying to also affect legislation in a positive way? It's a delicate balance, and and I'm still learning. Um, But, you know, I give so much credit to Senator Britt and, uh, you know, a a group of senators on both sides of the aisle and the the House for really digging in and looking into the criminal justice reform. Um, I was a member of the governor's task force on racial equity and criminal Mm -hmm. justice, and we came up with 125 recommendations. So... I took being a member of that and introducing some bills, uh, about a dozen of them, that reflected the work of the task force on racial equity. Um, many of them did not get a committee hearing at all. Mm-hmm. The uh, Raising the minimum age uh, was one that did go through and worked hard on, talked to um, Senator Britt about. And we, we're able to improve legislation. Um, our signature may not be on it, but I think we can stop some of the bad, help improve it, massage it to get it where it needs to be. I'm proud of the work that was done last session, uh, but I think we have a lot more to go. You know, the, we took half steps where I wish we could take bigger steps. I mean, even the use of the body cam. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a shooting here in Raleigh uh, just last week, and the police department said, "I wish we wish we could get this body cam footage out because yeah. the public is outraged and, and we think it'll show what really happened. But the legislation requires any release of body cam has to go through a superior court judge. Well, that's going to take days or weeks to, to have happen. In the meantime, all this public outrage is happening. So I think there's still a lot of work we can do. Um, and so I'm very devoted to staying involved if you had a magic wand we are partisan we are divided if you could fix one thing in our politics today what would it be i think the answer is in the question how do we not be so partisan and be so divided and we approach things from how does this affect the common good um i would like to see our legislature opened up so it would be accessible to many other people who would like to run you know we're supposed to be a part-time legislature, and yet we're still in session after, you know, over a year, mm-hmm. making 13000 a year. 
most people can't do that. So mm. it becomes a legislature of people who are independently wealthy or they're retired or, you know, that's not reflective of who we are as a state. So I would like to see much more involvement by people um, so they would have the opportunity to serve or run. Um, actually, I hate the party labels. You know, I'm, I'm very much, I wish unaffiliateds have more of a voice. Um, mm. But, you know, if you're in the minority, you assume a role and you don't have a certain number of bills that could be considered and put out for a vote. I mean, we're subject to all the rules set and passed by the majority. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a fair way to do it. If there was a percentage based on the percentage of elected Democrats, that's how many you know bills could be up for debate and not just simply shut out. That's interesting. But I think yeah. to hear more voices, and maybe we shouldn't be on two sides of the aisle. Maybe we should be seated alphabetically and sit next to opposite uh, members of the party to come together more. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, Brian, you suggested that uh, Jamie Bull said, you know, we should all be living in one That may go a little too far. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know my Republican uh, colleagues as well as I would like to. And I think the more I'm there, the more I really want to do that. Uh, going back to being a swimmer, it's kind of an individual sport. And um, being a judge was kind of an individual effort. Now I'm on a team Mm -hmm. And uh, we need to play team sports. So uh, hopefully that approach will help in the long run. Full circle with that. There you go. <laughs> Full circle, yeah. Well, Representative Marsha Moray, we appreciate everything you do for your district, everything you do for the state. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast yeah. today. My pleasure. Thank you. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I have said on the podcast in the past that one of the hardest jobs in the General Assembly is to be a legislator in the minority party. And Representative Moray, she serves in the Democratic Caucus. And as you pointed out in the interview, she is a content expert when it comes to judiciary matters. And I think it must be exponentially more difficult when you want to do policy work. You know, she's not really interested in politics. You don't see her out there talking political. She's usually talking about the mechanics of legislation, the courts, the importance, making investments. And then, of course, she is so passionate about juvenile justice issues. I think it is really difficult for her to be that policy expert in the minority party. She talked about her struggle, like that balancing act she must play, and she does it well. We, we've seen her work in judiciary committees. You handle a lot of work in the judiciary committees, and she, she's very thoughtful. She engages, I think, in a, in a very constructive way, but it is hard. Tweet, Tweet of, of the week. week. For the second week in a row, we have a tweet of the week 
from NCDOT, which is at NCDOT. Whoever is running their Twitter account is doing amazing things. We're going to perform this? Not we. You. This was your idea. So their tweet this week is pretty much set to the classic early 90s rap song by Vanilla Ice. Ice Ice Baby. The tweet went viral this week. Yeah. So go ahead. All right. All right, stop. Put that phone in. Listen. Ice is back and we'll make the roads glisten. D-O-T ain't taking this lightly. We're out in force daily and nightly. If there was a problem, yo, we'll solve it. Sit back on your couch while the forces resolve it. Ice, ice, baby. Vanilla ice, ice, baby. So how did you fare last week in the snowstorm? Three to five inches here in Raleigh. How'd you do, Sky? I did fine. I was so happy when it was snowing. It was beautiful. I loved waking up and seeing more snow. I loved it. I love snow. We got a video from one of our clients, actually the North Carolina Travel Industry Association, which is a proud sponsor of this podcast, Vince Shalina. He was listening to the podcast. You and I are going back and forth about fireplaces and are kind of yearning for that crackle of the fireplace. He sends us a great video of him sitting by the fire, and you could just hear the crackle in it. it. I feel like a lot of folks across the state, and I know the triangle was hit more than the rest of the state, although we did have a lot of snow in eastern North Carolina. That was kind yeah. of interesting to see. I think it was more on the east, and then as you went west, it was less. Yeah, but it, it was fun. Do you know how weather works? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I enjoyed the most about the snow? What? Social media that day was just full of... Kids and dogs and snow? Yeah. That's what I was... Yeah, it was so positive. You know, it feels like we're just duking it out all the time on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But it seemed like everyone went outside and took an obligatory photo of them or their family or the kids or or a video. It was just it was a lot of fun. Very positive. I like the snow with the ruler in it. I, yeah. I like those photos. It's like the first day of school pictures with kids. You know, it just is so, or Mother's Day, people posting photos of their mom, just like nice days like that. Yeah, we need more of it. Period. Or you could, you know, just stay off of Twitter. <laughs> so there's always that option. So tomorrow, we are going to drive to Wilmington together and we will come back. And so that, you know what that means. Four hours of car content with Brian Lewis, otherwise known as Louie. I would like everyone from here on out to start referring to Brian Lewis as Louie, little Louie, if you will. And you can just take that wherever you need to take it. But he would like to be referred to only as little Louie. All right. You, you've got to explain how Louie came up today. So we had this meeting at the General Assembly and Brian had gone to the bathroom or something and our clients who are from the Northeast. New York, Boston. Yeah, there's a few different guys and they were like, hey, where'd Louie go? And it took me a second. I told Brian, I was like, it took me a second to be like, oh, they're talking about Brian. But then I was like, that's a great nickname and I'm going to implement it. Louie. I, I could live with Louie. Yeah, little Louie. Louie. <laughs> 
you get called David all the time. Yeah, I Or do. Skyler. Yeah. Uh, what else? People spell your name without the E. Yeah. I, I get Skype a lot, which is weird. And I used to get Skype a lot when people Skyped. Oh. Yeah. So people... I, but we, I get a lot of emails that I send to someone and then they respond back like, hey, Mr. David. And then I'm like... Yeah. You can see my name in the email. It's just one of those pet peeves. I think probably a lot of people have that sort of thing where their name is spelled, maybe your mark with a C instead of a K. And then people respond back to you when your name is right there in front of them. Yeah. And your name seems so simple. Sky David. Yeah. It is simple, little Louie. (laughs) (laughs) For those who have followed us for years, we have a little singing in the car segment that we like to do. So stay tuned for what we'll have tomorrow. Yeah, those are popular. A little singing, a little dancing. Yeah. Your dancing is always the same. My little running man thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you and my wife talk about that. I feel like I've got good rhythm, but, you know, it's hard to dance in the car, especially I'm usually the one driving. Yeah, and you're like, I can take two wheels off or two hands (laughs) off the wheel. Who cares? If we die, we die happy. (laughs) (laughs) And when we get bored, we'll start calling people. So (laughs) keep your phones on. Yeah. Just know that when we do call you, we will have you on speakerphone. Please pick up, too. Yeah. We, who are you targeting here? No, you know who you are. Pick up, because we want to talk. <laughs> Help us get through some of this drive. At you, Senator Devier. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And if you don't answer, Brian will leave you a voicemail and take up the entire three minutes on okay. your voicemail. Yeah. Or call us. Give us a call, somebody. We're in the car Sometime around middle afternoon, give us a call. We'd love to talk. Thanks for listening to the Do Politics Better podcast. We will be back next week with a new guest. And until then, stay warm, stay dry if there is more snow, and remember to do politics better. (laughs) You look like an old man in a nursing home with that sweater on. (laughs) Come here, Grandpa. Let me get you your afghan. (laughs) This is my Mr. Rogers sweater. It makes me feel very calm and warm.